Hello and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos and in this podcast series we explore with some of the world's leading experts how new technologies and ideas can help us shape our future. In this week's episode, I talk to Jeff Mulgan, Chief Executive of Nesta and Chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. So Jeff, thank you very much for taking the time. This is um, a very interesting time where we're talking about the fourth industrial revolution and how to deal with it. It has, it has been spurred a lot, if not mainly by innovation and entrepreneurship. They have key roles in determining the, the future of how this fourth industrial revolution and its impact to society takes us. As you're in this world, what are the key trends in currently in the global innovation and entrepreneurship landscape that you're very excited about? And what are some of the trends and challenges we should be concerned about? Well, I think seen through one lens, the fourth industrial revolution is incredibly exciting. We're seeing a flood of new technologies and solutions to everything from transport and healthcare uh, to, um, to, to energy, all sorts of ways in which physical things, whether it's human bodies or, or buildings, are being integrated into digital tech. I think the big concern at the moment is who's going to end up benefiting. And partly that's a concern about really the direction of where investment has gone in the fourth industrial revolution. A lot of the drive of investment behind some of these technologies has come mainly from the military or from intelligence agencies. And within the business world, some of the solutions don't really meet real needs. So the, the classic example is in sort of smart homes and smart cities, the promise that your refrigerator will tell you when you need to buy a, you know, a new, new bottle of milk, which is kind of interesting, but not exactly the most pressing thing for people's concerns. So the big, the big issue, on the one hand, is how do we shift the whole energy of innovation in this field to the things which really matter, to improving people's lives, improving their health care, improving their education or nutrition, and I think the other concern is how do we make sure many more people have a chance to play a role in shaping it? At the moment, most of the, the tech is coming from pretty big companies mainly, from small number of R&D and product development centers. And how do we make this a revolution which millions can take part in? And that, that's what takes us to you know, the role of entrepreneurship programs, innovation programs. How do they reach out beyond relatively elite, well-educated groups in the big cities or in Silicon Valley or in um, sort of the heartlands of, uh, of technology innovation to many more people. And that is beginning to happen. And one of the things we've been doing in our, our Global Futures Council is mapping the, the projects and programs around the world which are really radically more inclusive, opening up to, uh, to smaller entrepreneurs, to, to perhaps more marginalized groups, trying to offer a vision of the fourth industrial revolution which, which meets uh, the most pressing human needs rather than the, the somewhat slightly trivial or even da dangerous ones which have been part of the, the rhetoric so far. One of the great promises of the fourth industrial revolution is to continue and really deepen uh, one of the most amazing trends of recent years, which is the way in which it's become much easier to become an entrepreneur or an innovator using uh, cloud computing, using tools like Mechanical Turk or TaskRabbit and MakerBot, all these different tools have reduced the barriers to entry for someone who's got a new idea, who can set up a micro-enterprise or a small enterprise and then trade, export all over the world. 
We've got this trend, which in many ways we think needs to be reinforced with new tools which make it easier to handle law, easier to handle tax, easier to handle accounting, so many, many more people can be successful entrepreneurs, backed by much more powerful online platforms, giving skills to entrepreneurs, again, how to develop tech, how to market, how to manage finances. But the truth is, there are some very powerful contrary trends in many countries where actually the level of competition in markets is reducing, uh, more concentration, more quasi-monopolies, and perhaps sometimes more governments getting in the way of entrepreneurship. And so one of the messages of our council is to try and find new ways in which big companies, investors and others can reinforce these positive trends of opening up the whole space of innovation entrepreneurship and countering the trends which are closing down uh, real opportunities for people. Touching a lot of interesting points there uh, and, a, and a very difficult and complex topic to, to grapple with, I suppose. Uh, where does one start? I mean, mapping some of these uh, initiatives sounds very interesting. Is there something we can learn from history? Are there already some uh, initiatives that you have singled out as things that can be emulated by, by big companies? How, how, do, how do you start by tackling such a problem? We're really interested in looking at the roles different sort of fields can play. So one is schools, for example. How do schools give children, perhaps as young as five or six, uh, experience of, of playing with, making the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution? And we've seen many countries around the world, from China uh, to Italy to Canada, opening up maker spaces so kids are, are players, are, are makers of this revolution from a very early age. There's a big role for universities. How can universities also open up their work so they're getting students to work much more on practical challenges where they're working on projects which apply 4IR technologies to things like water shortage or congestion or, or air quality. And where that happens, students often find this much more motivating, much more exciting than just sitting in, in classrooms doing traditional degrees. In the case of big companies, there are good examples from Alibaba and Samsung to, to Google of companies attempting to open up their facilities, their, their brain power, their labs to many more entrepreneurs to work again on practical problem solving, generating new tools and new models. The truth is, though, all of these are still pretty marginal and fairly small scale compared to the, the big drive of and sometimes very traditional 20th century technology development, which is shaping a lot of the, the smart city, smart home tools, which is, I think, one of the reasons why there's a fear um, that we'll end up a bit dissatisfied with how much this revolution is really improving our lives. And, of course, overriding all of that is the fear that this revolution will destroy many more jobs than it creates and will end up leaving more losers uh, than winners. And I think that's the big sort of political and, and social and ethical challenge for, for any companies involved in this field is how do they widen the circle of winners so it's not seen as a revolution which is only benefiting a, a tiny minority of the world's population. Very important subjects there and topics. And you, you did mention at the beginning the touched upon at least on the role of the, the organized society in the state in terms of how much the military has been driving part of these technologies. What are your 
opinions there, how can we change this aspect, and also more broadly, what is the role right now of regulators in terms of dealing with all of these issues that you, you mapped out? So I think the distortion in technology development partly reflects just where the money goes. So uh, in many big countries, half if not more of all public spending on technology goes to, to warfare. That's true in the US, it's true probably in China, Russia, to a slightly lesser extent in countries like the UK and France. So that has driven technology in a particular direction, mainly to better ways of killing people rather than helping them. I would like to see that shift, and alongside that, we've been looking at how governments can do what we call anticipatory regulation, shifting policy and regulation so it's better at uh, preparing for and making the most of emerging technologies. And there's a really interesting set of new tools being used by governments around the world, so regulation is better prepared for rapid changes in things like um, machine learning or deployment of sensors or the role of driverless cars and, and drones. Some of that is about what in finance has been called sandboxes, where you open up a space for innovators, entrepreneurs, to try out their new ideas, working directly with the regulators and policymakers so they don't face unnecessary barriers to implementation uh, and scaling up. Uh, and that's happened a lot in fintech in countries like the UK and the US, and now there's about 40 countries using sandbox methods. We've also looked at the role of, of testbeds, innovation testbeds, where, again, innovators can try ideas out in a real-world context. Cities like Seoul are doing that, uh, Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. Again, so the innovators work directly with the policymakers upstream before often their, their products have gone to market, to try and ensure the policy-making environment is favourable. And then there's a lot of experiment in how do you involve the public so that they can have some say on what they're getting out of emerging technologies. And here, probably the best example is Taiwan, where uh, the digital minister has worked with the parliament to open up the whole process of designing regulation in a really radical way using digital tech. So it's much more open, much more transparent, but also much more dynamic and much more focused on how do we get the maximum public benefit from uh, new possibilities and new opportunities. All of this, though, is a big shift away from probably what were the normal habits of regulators 5, 10, 15 years ago, where they saw their role as really coming pretty late into these sort of discussions, mainly dominated by lawyers, seeing regulation as something to be pretty fixed over long periods of time, whereas increasingly on these hugely important tools like the shift to driverless cars or like the shift to far more data-driven medicine, we're needing regulators to be much more uh, engaged, much more stuck in, much more willing to adapt and iterate uh, the rules in relation to emerging opportunities. Is there, um, right now, you, you've been part of this Global Future Council, you've been in Davos in other big meetings around the world, What's your sense in terms of the switch in mentality of leaders and decision makers around the world about the need to completely change the way that these decisions are taken for the fourth industrial revolution to be successful? I think at the moment most of the discussion on the fourth industrial revolution is in some ways, although it's talking about very modern technologies, in some ways it's quite an old-fashioned discussion where new technologies come out of the labs, out of companies, and then in a linear way 
are sort of pushed out into society and out into the economy, and the hope is at the end of that everyone's grateful for uh, the progress uh, achieved. I think the lesson of history is that the world really doesn't work like that. Uh, unless people see a real benefit to them, they won't demand things, they won't pay for them. Unless people see a real benefit for them, they will use politics and regulation to block the scaling up uh, of, of new technologies. So we need a much more intelligent and more sophisticated debate about how these things work. And I think we can learn a lot from the smart cities field, which over the last 10 or 15 years often made the same mistake of, of promising tech solutions without really engaging with the people, without really focusing on what needs are these really addressing, how to give people a, a say. And a lot of smart city investment has been wasted, has not delivered either financial returns or social returns. And the lesson from that is attend to not just the technological potential and not just the narrow business case, but ensuring this is a, a revolution where many more people can have, have a part to play as shapers, as entrepreneurs, as potential employees, uh, as seeing some benefit from them in terms of their, their daily life, their work, their pay, but also where the products themselves are meeting the most pressing human needs for things like healthier living, mobility, better food, better water. And that shift hasn't really happened, and there's a risk, therefore, of unnecessarily repeating the errors which have so beset um, many of the other key technologies of the last 40 or 50 years, which appeared to be uh, unambiguous improvements, uh, benefits for the world, but ended up being blocked because of a lack of either consumer demand or because the politics moved against them and regulations were put in their way. That was Jeff Mulgan, Chief Executive of Nesta and Chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Innovation and Entrepreneurship. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and that was all from this week's episode of A Glimpse into the Future.